Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. I am finally back on land, having spent uh, about nine days at sea, the Investors Summit at Sea, something I've been doing annually now. This is my seventh time doing that, but I am now back, technically one calendar year older. I want to catch up a little bit on what happened in the market later last week. I did do that one podcast from the ship on uh, Tuesday, I believe it was, or Wednesday, following the complete capitulation on the part of the Federal Reserve, basically calling off all of the rate hikes that anybody thought may have been coming for the remainder of the year, and also calling off their feigned attempt to shrink their balance sheet, uh, quantitative tightening. The balance sheet will barely uh, shrink between now and the end of the summer when it will stop shrinking altogether if they can even keep up the pretense for that long. Of course, you know, if you remember... When I was forecasting that this was going to happen, at the very beginning, in fact, even before the Fed began to shrink its balance sheet, uh, before the Fed raised rates for the first time, right? I said that if they ever tried to normalize interest rates, if they ever tried to shrink the balance sheet, they would ultimately abort the process, that they would fail in their mission, that they couldn't complete uh, the journey, and that it would create a huge problem for the Fed, which up up until this point, it hasn't happened yet because nobody really appreciates what the Fed has done. I think a lot of the people in the investment community are still buying what the Fed is saying at face value. But remember, 
when I said the Fed was going to announce that it was going to uh, stop the rate hikes or call off quantitative tightening, I said at the time that they were going to come up with an excuse that the Fed was not going to tell the markets the truth about why it had aborted this mission. It was just going to make up an excuse because the Fed had to pretend that they could actually do this, that they were going to normalize interest rates, that they were going to shrink their balance sheet, but something prevented them from doing it. They're all, you know, something happened and now they have to, you know, be on pause. They have to be patient, but they'll get to it in the future because they have to maintain this pretense because the only reason that quantitative easing didn't cause the dollar to implode when they did it last time was because the Fed convinced everybody it was temporary. The Fed convinced the markets that all the bonds that it bought, it was going to sell. The Fed convinced the market that interest rates were only artificially low as an emergency. It was training wheels on a bike that once the bike stabilized, we're going to take off the wheels. We're going to normalize interest rates. And so the currency markets, you know, looked beyond the rate cuts, beyond quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, to a normalization of interest rates. And the markets price in events in the future today. It's a discounting mechanism. So all that stuff was priced into the market. That's what propped up the dollar. Now, I said the entire time that this is nonsense, that the Fed can't do any of this, but the markets believed them anyway. Well, now the Fed has come out and said, well, we're not going to keep hiking rates. But as I predicted, they are not telling the truth. The markets can't handle that. The Fed is not telling the markets we're not raising rates because the economy is imploding because of all the debt that was accumulated when we kept rates so low. Now we can't raise them or we can't uh, continue to shrink the balance sheet because the budget deficits are blowing out of control. In fact, look at the budget deficit for the month of February. I think we just got the reports on that last week. This is an all-time record high. The deficit was $234 billion for the month of February. And that is the biggest deficit we've ever had in the month of February in the history of the country. That means that it's worse than the deficit we had in February of 2009, right? In the depths of the financial crisis, the government wasn't borrowing as much money in February as it's doing right now, or as it did this February, when we're supposedly having the greatest economy in the history of America. So if we are running these enormous budget deficits now, before the recession, imagine how much greater they're going to be during the recession. The Fed can't add fuel to the fire by competing with the Treasury. The Fed can't keep unloading bonds at the same time that the Treasury is selling them like they're going out of style. In fact, I think that by the time Trump leaves office, and I still think he's going to leave office at the end of 2020, despite some good political news that he got on the Mueller report, which I will get to uh, in, in a bit. But by the time he leaves office, I think that Trump is going to set the record. He is going to have the biggest budget deficits in every single calendar month of the year. January through December, we will have the biggest deficits per month in history. The only good news is, or I guess for Trump, is his record is going to get broken because whoever succeeds him, they're going to have even larger deficits on an ongoing basis than the ones that Trump racked up, which is why we're going to have a sovereign debt crisis and a currency crisis. But given the enormity of these deficits, 
the Fed has to call off quantitative tightening as it prepares for quantitative easing. But the Fed can't tell the markets that. The markets are going to have to figure it out on their own, which they will do. And when they do, the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar because when the Fed has to go back to zero, which it will be doing relatively soon, when the Fed has to go back to quantitative easing, nobody is going to believe that it's temporary again. Nobody is going to buy the Fed's BS about how interest rates are going to stay low only temporarily, and then we're going to normalize them, and we're going to shrink our balance sheet. We're not monetizing the debt. After the recession is over, we're going to shrink our balance sheet back down to where it was uh, before the recession. No one's going to believe that. If they couldn't uh, shrink a $4 trillion balance sheet, they won't be able to shrink an $8 trillion balance sheet. If they couldn't raise rates when the national debt was $22 trillion, they sure as hell can't raise them when the national debt is $30 trillion. The longer they wait to raise rates, the more impossible it is to do it. The longer they wait to shrink the balance sheet, the more impossible it is to do it, and the markets will eventually figure it out. I mean, the funny thing is, look at the price of oil. Oil prices today closed above $60 a barrel. The chart looks very, very positive on the price of oil. One of the only specific reasons that the Fed is articulating for why it has done a 180-degree pivot on monetary policy, on interest rate hikes, on quantitative tightening, is oil. The Fed is saying that because oil prices are weak, oil prices are falling, this is keeping a lid on inflation, this is keeping uh, prices at or near our 2% level, and so because of weak oil prices, we're not as concerned as we used to be about inflation, and therefore we can afford to be patient when it comes to future rate hikes. It's amazing that other than Jeff Gunlock, I mean, nobody else seems to be pointing out, other than me and Jeff, <laughs> how ridiculous this statement is. And, you know, by the way, Gunlock also, I heard in a, in a recent interview, he's also referring to uh, AOC uh, as the bartender. Uh, but in any event, um, getting back to the, the oil analogy, oil prices have done nothing but go up since the last time the Fed raised rates. They raised rates in December. Right. And if you go back, I think it was December 10th or I forget the exact date, but I had looked it up earlier. And the price of oil on the last rate hike, oil prices were under forty six dollars a barrel. And obviously, the Fed knew what the price of oil was when they decided to hike rates. And they also knew what the price of oil was when Powell had his press conference and indicated that interest rates were likely to rise three, maybe four more times in 2019. Uh, the Fed had all this data. They saw how much oil prices had fallen right, in the previous couple of months. Yet despite that, they raised interest rates. And despite that, they claimed that they would continue to raise interest rates. Now, here we are a few months later, oil prices have gone way up by about 33%. And now the Fed comes out and says, the reason that we are not going to raise rates more is because oil prices have gone down. Well, if that was the reason, if they were worried about oil prices, why weren't they worried about them when oil prices were $45 a barrel? 
Why did they raise rates in December? Why did they indicate that they were going to keep raising interest rates if their prime concern was falling oil prices? Why did they wait for oil prices to have a big increase before they suddenly became worried about falling oil prices? In fact, if you go back three years ago, the price of oil is up about 60% over the last three years. That's 20% a year. What are they worried about? That's not, that's not a big enough increase. And, you know, if you look at this chart, I think oil prices are going a lot higher. I think we can be at $80 or higher before the end of the year. Then what is the Fed going to say? Oil prices breaking out, making new highs, and they're still locked at zero? I mean, this is the flimsiest excuse out there, and the markets are still buying it. Right. No, nobody is calling a Fed out again, other than me and, and Gunlock. I mean, there's nobody out there that is saying this is ridiculous. Now, of course, I think people don't want to point this out because they're afraid of what that means, because they don't want to acknowledge the truth about why the Fed uh, has stopped increasing rates, why the Fed has called off uh, the reduction in its balance sheet. They don't want to admit Right, that, that I was right from the beginning, that the Fed checked us into the monetary motel and there's no way to ever check out. But I do believe the markets are going to figure this out, whether the Fed admits it or not, during the next recession. And of course, the bond market right, is already starting to flash. Recession is coming. One of the big news stories of the week is the inversion of the yield curve. And if you look at the yield curve now, the yield on three-month treasuries, as I speak, is 2.44%. The yield on the 10-year is 2.42%. So the yield curve is inverted from three months all the way to 10 years. Now, it's not inverted anymore between like the two-year because the two-year has already come down. So the two-year is 227 and the 10-year is 2.42. So it's not, you know, a complete straight line down, but it is an inverted yield curve between the 10 and the three-month, even the 10 and the six-month. The six-month yield is 2.48. So 2.42 on the 10-year. The five-year is all the way down to 2.2 on the five-year. Right? So you've got a, a pretty decent inversion there over the five. The one maturity that hasn't inverted and which never is going to revert, in my opinion, I said this, is the 30-year. The yield on the 30-year is 2.87. And in fact, the curve is widening between the 10 and the 30, which is exactly what I said it was going to do on this podcast. I recommended for speculators, if they wanted to do a trade, that I thought a, a good trade would be to short the uh, the 30-year and go long the 10-year because I thought the gap between those two maturities would widen, and it is widened. And I expect that to widen a lot more. You know, one thing that the bond investors have not figured out yet, and they will figure it out eventually, but they haven't figured it out yet, is the recession that they are correctly forecasting is actually going to be negative for bonds. It's not going to be positive. See, the, the reflexive... Uh, view is that if we're going to have a recession, that's going to be 
good for the bond market because it's going to reduce interest rates. Maybe it's going to reduce uh, inflation because people believe that inflation is a function of demand and economic growth. And if we have a weakening economy, well, we're going to have uh, uh, you know muted inflation. So lower inflation is good for bonds. And of course, the Fed may be fighting the inflation by cutting interest rates or maybe even doing more quantitative easing where they buy bonds. And so having the Fed be a buyer of bonds instead of a seller of bonds, well, that's going to be positive for the bond market because there's more demand and less supply hitting the public market. And so the markets are anticipating this and and pricing it in. But what they don't get is this recession is going to be inflationary. It is going to be stagflation. When the Fed has to reverse course on monetary policy because the economy is in recession, prices are going to skyrocket as the dollar tanks. And nobody is going to believe that the cheap money is temporary. Nobody is going to believe that after the crisis is over, the Fed's going to normalize. Nobody's going to believe that after the Fed finishes you know, jacking up its balance sheet even more, that it's going to unwind it. They're not going to buy that a second time. The Fed is going to prove its impotence when it comes to normalizing interest rates and shrinking its balance sheet. So there's going to be no floor to the dollar. The dollar is going to tank. That means America is not going to be exporting its inflation to the rest of the world. It is all going to be manifesting itself domestically, and that is going to put upward pressure on interest rates, downward pressure on bonds. And of course, as people start to anticipate this free fall in the dollar, this endless decline, nobody is going to want to buy U.S. Treasuries. The only buyer is going to be the Federal Reserve. And of course, when you have the Federal Reserve printing up money as the only buyer, then that extra money just fuels the inflationary fire that is already burning. None of this is going to stimulate the economy. It is going to stimulate inflation. So the people who are buying bonds because they think the economy is going into recession, they're half right. They're right that it's, the economy is going into recession, but they're wrong to think that the place to be is in bonds. It's not. Where they should be is in gold, right? If you're really trying to play it safe and you're worried about the U.S. economy going into recession and you don't want to take a lot of risk, in my opinion, you buy gold because I think that's the safest asset out there because in order to fight recession, they're going to print a lot of money, which is inflationary, which is going to hurt bonds and hurt the dollar, but it will help gold. In fact, you know, I'm going to be doing a debate, another uh, Bitcoin versus gold debate at the uh, SALT conference, uh, Anthony Scaramucci's uh, uh, Skybridge Alternative Asset Conference. I'm going to be there in May, just a few days before the Las Vegas Money Show. So I'm going to be staying in Vegas for for a while, a little over a week. Uh, But before I do the Money Show, I'm doing the SALT conference, and I'm going to be doing a gold versus Bitcoin debate. My opponent is a guy by the name of Barry uh, Silbert. Uh, who uh, I know CNBC calls the guy the crypto king. Uh, So he's a a big guy in the crypto space. So it should be another interesting gold versus Bitcoin debate. But I think the people who are buying gold are on the right side of the trade. I think people who are trying to hedge this currency crisis by being in, in cryptocurrencies have jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. Well, that reminds me, while I'm talking about the money show, Stephen Moore, Uh, A friend of mine uh, will also be at the Money Show. He is a regular at that show. In fact, he's also going to be in Vegas again with me for Freedom Fest in July. But Steve Moore, who used to be with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, 
um, but now is associated with, I think, the Heritage Foundation, uh, you know, conservative commentator, big Trump supporter. He's a good friend of uh, Larry Kudlow's and Stephen Moore. That's his circle. He it was just announced that Donald Trump is is uh, nominating him to be on the Federal uh, Open Market Committee board, a board member of the Fed. And I think the, the motivation for that was an article that I mentioned on this podcast uh, that was very critical of the Federal Reserve uh, for raising interest rates and was actually critical of, of Trump, too, in a way, uh, for uh, wanting to shrink the trade deficit because his argument that the, the big trade deficit didn't matter, that it was a sign of a strong economy, which I, I couldn't disagree with that more. Uh, but Steve Moore uh, wrote this article basically uh, validating Trump talking about how great Trump had been and, and, and vilifying the Fed. And I think that uh, you know, the president read that article and as a result is nominating Steve Moore uh, to be on the board of the Federal Reserve, obviously sending another message to the Fed because they're bringing a critic of the Fed and he wants to put him on the board uh, who has publicly criticized the Fed for raising rates. And now he wants this guy to be a board member, which again shows you how much politics is entering into the Fed. But, you know, one of the ironic things about the nomination of Stephen Moore, and this is a big problem, again, that the that the Republicans have, is I remember back in the day, you know, when I was doing Glenn Beck on Headline News and one of the other guests that would come on a lot with me. In fact, I think there was one time we were on together was me and Steve Moore. We were both on with Glenn Beck talking about how the Fed was wrong uh, to do quantitative easing and slashing interest rates and all this was going to lead to inflation. And of course, we were both right. It's just that we were both early. But uh, he was uh, correct in his criticism of the Fed's monetary policy. But now he is advocating the same policy. He's actually criticizing the Fed for doing the opposite of what he criticized them for doing before. And, of course, the liberals are pointing out the hypocrisy of what Stephen Moore is now saying. He basically was saying that under Obama, an easy Fed was inflationary, it was political, that it was going to destroy the dollar and lead to inflation. But now he's advocating the same thing because Trump is president. Look, you've got to be consistent. I was critical of the Fed's easy money policy under Obama. I was critical of their easy money policy under Bush. And I'm critical of it under under Trump. In fact, even though the Fed is tightening, they're still easy. They're not tightening enough, right? All these people are criticizing the Fed. Oh, I guess they made him a policy mistake. They raised interest rates too much. That was not the mistake. The mistake was lowering them to zero in the first place. The mistake was raising them so slowly. And another mistake, and maybe this is just a mistake in judgment, was believing they could do it, believing that they could raise interest rates without impacting the bubble economy that they could raise rates despite the fact that they built an economy on 0% rates, that they could raise rates without it imploding, that they could deliberately uh, you know, uh, inflate asset prices by doing quantitative easing, and that quantitative tightening wasn't going to reverse the process. I mean, I don't know if that was naive or stupid or a combination or you know, just a, all part of the, the, the lie. But the fact that Stephen Moore was an honest critic of the Fed, and now He's a, a cheerleader of the same type of monetary policies that he criticized is problematic uh, for the Republicans. But I think the fact that 
uh, Steve Moore may, in fact, get on the Fed specifically because he wants cheap money. He only wants cheap money because we have a Republican president. But believe me, after Trump is not reelected, right, when he loses in 2020, if Steve Moore does get confirmed that he's still on the Fed in 2021, well, maybe he'll be a voice of reason. But once we have a, a, a Democrat in, uh, in, in the White House, but you've got to be consistent. Right? And, and, and he is correct in that uh, raising interest rates now are, are helping to you know, compound the problem, but it's the right thing to do. Right? Taking away the drugs is the only way for the addict to get healthy. We have to go through the withdrawal. We have to go through a painful recession in order to cure the economy of the disease that uh, it developed based on all the years of this monetary policy. And um, more is going to be correct. We are going to have the runaway inflation once the Fed has to go back to zero and goes back to QE, and they can no longer pretend that it is a temporary policy. They can no longer pretend that they will remove the stimulus once it's no longer needed because their recent about face would have proved to everybody uh, that that's just a bunch of nonsense. But, you know, despite the fact that bond traders or at least got the economy right, right, they at least understand that a recession is coming. If they don't understand the real implications for that on the dollar inflation, uh, bonds, at least they see the economic weakness. The stock market investors are completely oblivious I mean, these guys aren't afraid of nothing. In fact, probably one of the most ironic statements I heard, because they're talking about this on CNBC, and I forget the name of the, the money manager, asset manager. He was a big guy, right? He's a big institutional, manages a lot of money. And he basically proclaims that he's buying stocks, that he's buying. And the reason that he's buying is because everybody else is afraid. He said that when you see all this fear out there, people are afraid of the inverted yield curve. They're afraid that the second longest economic expansion in history is coming to an end. And, you know, I see all these people afraid. And so I'm going to be brave, right? This is the time to be brave when everybody else is afraid. And so I'm buying stocks because there's so much fear. And I'm thinking, like, what the hell is this guy smoking? There's no fear. I mean, not in the stock market. No one's afraid of anything. Look at the VIX. I mean, people should be afraid of an inverting yield curve. They should be afraid that this old expansion is, is nearing its end and getting tired. People should be worried about those things. In fact, they should be worried about a lot more stuff. Not just that, but they're not worried about anything. Yet this guy pretends that the reason that he's bullish is because everybody else is bearish. No, everybody else is bullish. This story that people are too afraid to invest is, is a bunch of nonsense. But, you know, if this guy actually understood the, the economy, right, he'd, he'd be selling. You know, he, he, would, he, would, he, he would be afraid, but he's too oblivious or too clueless to be afraid, even though you get all this uh, negative information. At the end of last week, we got business inventories, which did have a big spike, but only because sales were the lowest in three years. So you have sales collapsing. I mean, look at the housing market. We got data today on housing starts and mortgage rates are down, I think about 70 basis points uh, over the past several months, right? Based on, you know, the Fed's about face. So we've seen a big decline in, in mortgage rates. 
But it hasn't helped the housing market. I mean, look at the number we got today for housing starts. It was lower than estimate. So we got a miss in housing starts, despite all this help from the Fed. So if the housing market is still this week, despite a big drop in mortgage rates, can you imagine where the housing market would be right now had the Fed continued to raise rates just the way it said it was going to do at the end of last year? Had the Fed continued to maintain that stance? where the housing market would be. Look at uh, the consumer sentiment numbers that came out today. They were looking for consumer sentiment to rise, right? We had a rising stock market. This is a March number. We have stock market going up. We have mortgage rates going down. People expected consumers to be more confident. The uh, In February, the index was 131.4. They were looking for an increase to 133. Instead, we plunged all the way down to 124.1. Now, that's still a high number historically, but it's a lot lower than we were in in February. And the question is why? If stock prices are going up and mortgage rates are going down, why are consumers losing confidence? That should cause a lot of concern out there. But no, everybody is completely optimistic. They don't care about uh, uh, the collapsing yield curve. They don't care about all the economic data that continues to point to recession and flash recession because they think the Fed has saved us because now the Fed has got it right and they've done an about face. But people still haven't figured out that the future rate hikes don't matter. It's the past rate hikes that have already guaranteed that we're headed to recession. And even if that wasn't the case, simply calling off rate hikes is not enough of an ease. Right? The, the only way that the Fed could try to stimulate the economy would be to cut rates back to zero because just leaving them at two and a quarter, two and a half, that's much too high. They need to cut them. That's not enough stimulus to avert a recession. That's not enough stimulus to avert a bear market. And in fact, we are in a bear market and the market might be a lot lower, but for the, you know, the, the Mueller report that came out and you know, the stock market on, on Friday dropped 460 points. Remember, I, I mentioned on my podcast on Wednesday that the, the market's reaction, the market's failure to mount a, a bigger rally in the aftermath of a more dovish Fed than what the market was expecting. The fact that we didn't get a bigger rally than the one that we got, we got a small rally. The fact that we didn't get a bigger rally, I thought, you know, was a pretty good sign that, you know, we'd seen the highs and that the bear market rally was over. Now we got a follow-up rally the following day, nothing that big. And then the markets tanked on Friday. Absolutely ugly day. The Dow closed on the low, made the lows into the closing bell, down 460 points. Uh, big weakness, of course, continuing in the Russell uh, 2000, uh, the transports. In fact, the, the weakness in the Russell uh, should really uh, raise alarm, alarm bells because a lot of people are trying to claim, oh, that the reason that the Fed is being patient now is because it's worried about the international economy, that it's not worried about the domestic economy. That's in good shape. It's just worried about the international economy. Well, if it really was the international economy, if it was foreign economies that were in trouble, but the domestic economy was in great shape, well, then you would expect the Russell 2000 to be doing better, right? Because the Russell 2000 is, you know, doesn't have as much influence. It's not big multinationals that depend on foreign sales. These are domestically focused companies. So if the U.S. economy is really so much stronger than the rest of the world, then the Russell 2000 should be outperforming. Instead, it is underperforming 
by wide margins, which would should lead you to conclude that there's a lot more problems in the domestic economy uh, than the Fed is willing to concede because they don't want to focus attention on the real problems abroad. And so they're making up excuses and you know deflecting attention by, by, by talking about problems internationally, even though those problems are actually smaller. But the news that we got about the Mueller uh, committee basically exonerating Trump, right? saying that based on millions of dollars spent, I think I saw a figure, maybe $25 million spent on this exhaustive investigation, they have not been able to find any evidence of collusion between Trump or anyone associated with his campaign and the Russians. I mean, maybe the Russians did try to influence the outcome of our election, but they didn't do so uh, by working uh, in conjunction with Trump or anyone at his organization. So there was no collusion, uh, and now Trump is exonerated. And this, again, this should be good news for the markets because the the probabilities of impeachment collapsed, right, once we got uh, the results of this report. And, of course, the left is screaming, foul, oh, this can't be, cover up, you know, you know obviously he must have colluded. Why? I mean, you know, I mean, there's no evidence that there was collusion. And this would is a, a political victory for the president. And the market should like this because, you know, obviously the president getting reelected would be better for the markets than a socialist Democrat getting elected. Yet despite this, the market's rally is very muted. We haven't even recovered Friday's losses. In the last couple of days, the market's moved higher, but we haven't even you know, come close to uh, recovering what was lost on Friday. So the fact that this piece of good news is not doing more for the market should be very troubling if you're bullish on the market. Now, I don't think this news is going to help reelect Trump because I don't think Trump's getting reelected because I think we're going to be in a recession. And I think the recession is going to trump uh, any political advantage that he got out of being falsely accused uh, by the Democrats of colluding with the Russians uh, to manipulate the the outcome of the election. But if if you don't believe that, right, if you're a, a typical Wall Street bull and you think the economy is great, right, and maybe you were worried about Trump not getting reelected, well, there's a lot less to worry about now and so you should be buying stocks. The market should be rallying. Instead, it's not. And so when you, you have a market that is not rallying on good news, uh, then that tells you that there's a problem. And the problem is we're in a bear market. The one positive thing that I actually see coming from the Trump administration, even though I think he is not going to be reelected, is the fact that the nominations he has made to the Supreme Court could be the last line of defense once Trump leaves office and the socialists start coming up with all sorts of programs that are unconstitutional, maybe this time we'll actually have a court that has the backbone to strike it down. In fact, I read that the Justice Department is not going to oppose uh, a district court's ruling uh, where they found Obamacare to be unconstitutional. And of course, the district court judge who authored that opinion was 100% accurate. Uh, the Supreme Court, in declaring Obamacare constitutional, on a five to four decision, that Supreme Court got it wrong. This judge got it right. But now the Justice Department is not going to oppose uh, in the appeal, right? They're, they're not going to uh, oppose that. In fact, they're going to write a brief in support of that decision. So there's a pretty good chance uh, that it will hold up on appeal. And if the Supreme Court hears it, that they will declare what's left of Obamacare 
unconstitutional, which is good news. Uh, but the better news is that the same Supreme Court may well declare all sorts of programs, taxes and things like that, unconstitutional that are going to be enacted uh, during the much greater recession that we're going to be in in 2021 and beyond. Now, in fact, I've already read some articles that the Democrats, their plan is to try to pack the Supreme Court to kind of do what uh, FDR uh, you know, was thinking about doing, but didn't do. Remember, there was the, the switch in, in time that stayed not saved nine, where you had one Supreme Court justice decided to uh, uh, validate uh, a, a, a New Deal program and, and thus uh, removing the need for Roosevelt to pack the Supreme Court. So because of that switch, we still have nine justices uh, on the court. But now they're talking about packing the court even more to basically nullify the impact of the Trump appointees so that a lot of the unconstitutional laws that are likely to be enacted during the next crisis can hold up because they they stack the court with with a bunch of a uh, bunch of ringers who are willing to rubber stamp any unconstitutional laws that get through a socialist Congress that a socialist president signs. In fact, I heard um, Elizabeth Warren was out there talking about her support of the idea that we lower the voting age down to 16. Remember, I talked about raising the voting age. I think 18 is too young. I think 21 is too young, where it was before they lowered it to 18. We should raise it up to 28 or 30 or something like that. But of course, the Democrats want to lower it to 16, although they'd lower it to 14 or 10. I mean, the lower, the better, right? The lower you are, the higher your likelihood is that you're going to vote for a Democrat, right? Because the, the younger you are, the less you know. And the less you know, the more likely you are to vote for the Democrat because the Democrat is just promising something for nothing. And if you're really young, you don't understand that there is no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, if you're really, really young, you believe in Santa Claus, right? And the politicians want people who believe in Santa Claus to vote for them. Because if you're still young enough and dumb enough to believe in Santa Claus, well, then if the government, you know, tries to give away free stuff, well, you'll believe in that, too. So uh, that's what they want. They just want to keep on lowering uh, down uh, the, uh, the, the the voting age because the, 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 the lower you are, the less real world experience that you have, the more likely you are uh, to vote Democrat. But, you know. At some point, it doesn't even matter because the electorate is getting completely dumbed down. I mean, another way you can see that is looking at the jury system, right? Because, you know, look who sits on on U.S. juries, right? It's the same pool, right? I think they pick you out uh, for a jury, maybe because you're registered to vote. And of course, anyone who has a job or has something to do, you know, they, they, they generally get out of jury duty. I mean, so what's left really is the bottom of the barrel, uh, when you come to jurors and then you look at what they come out with, like, look at this trial, the second uh, trial that they had where somebody who has cancer is blaming their cancer on the fact that they used uh, Roundup pesticide that has this uh, glyphosate is the ingredient. Right. And I, I spoke on this podcast before where a San Francisco jury found, despite no evidence whatsoever, that this groundskeeper who got uh, uh, non-Hopkins lymphoma, they claim, well, it's because he was using his pesticide and it's Monsanto's fault, which is owned by Bayer now, the German, German company, and had this huge award. And so now there was a second trial in which the jury came to the same conclusion that uh, this guy who happened to get uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that he got the disease as a result of using Roundup, which contains this uh, chemical glyphosate, which according to the World Health Organization, 
is a probable carcinogen, right? Not that it, it definitely causes cancer, but that it probably causes cancer. Now, they don't have any real factual basis for that conclusion. They are the only organization in the world that has come to that conclusion. Everybody else, including, you know, the FDA, not that, you know, they're so great, but, you know, the same thing in Europe, all the other independent or government agencies have determined that uh, glyphosate is safe, that it does not cause a cancer, that it is not a probable carcinogen. If you if you use it the way it is intended to be used, that it is completely safe. And they have no evidence, except they have this one guy at the World Health Organization, who, by the way, was actually paid. They found out that he was paid quite a bit of money by the lawyers who uh, represented the claimant in the, in, the, in the earlier case. Those very lawyers paid this guy to come up with this opinion. And then once they got the opinion, well, then they used it in their lawsuit uh, against uh, against Monsanto. But other than this guy, there's no one else. There is no other evidence. And in fact, if you look at the World Health Organization, they also claim that red meat probably causes cancer. They claim that drinking hot coffee probably causes cancer. So if this guy, you know, if he used Roundup, but, you know, but he also ate red meat, how do they know it wasn't the red meat that gave him the cancer? What if he drank hot coffee? I mean, most people who drink coffee drink it hot. Well, what if the hot coffee... He probably drank a lot more coffee than he, you know, used the pesticide. But of course, you know, I, one of the, uh, the the best arguments that uh, that they make that um, glyphosate does not cause uh, cancer, in particular non-Hopkins lymphoma, is the active ingredient, the glyphosate, right? That's been around for about 40 years and is widely used in all sorts of pesticides, not just uh, uh, Roundup, but if it is true that it does cause cancer, and now this has been so widely used over the last 40 years, but prior to that, it wasn't used at all, and now it's used all over the place, you would expect a pretty significant measurable increase in you know, the, the number of cases coming down. But there is no measurable increase in the incidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from before uh, glyphosate was in use and now that it's been in use for 40 years, it's, there is no measurable difference. So if that's the case, how could it possibly cause cancer? It doesn't, but you have idiotic jurors, American jurors, particularly in California, who are completely clueless and who are probably socialists and who don't like corporations, greedy corporations trying to make a profit. And they just want to redistribute money uh, from rich corporations to individuals who they believe are more deserving, like this uh, person who has uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And by the way, it's in remission. The other guy was, you know, was terminal. This guy isn't even dying anymore because his cancer is in remission. And by the way, the guy is obese. He is older. And he had hepatitis B and C, I think. I mean, so he has all these other high risk factors that are known to be or elevate your risk uh, of developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But despite the fact that this guy has all these other things, they're still trying to blame his uh, his cancer on the fact that he used a, a Roundup in his garden. Now, hopefully, you know, cooler heads will prevail on appeal and these awards will get thrown out as being ridiculous because we don't want America to be a country where jurors are able to rob people of money, right? You should have to prove uh, liability. You shouldn't just be able to say, hey, here's a rich, greedy company. Let's take their money, right? Because we don't like corporations and we want to just take money away from them or we don't like pesticides or we're environmentalists or whatever, you know, political acts that you have to grind. We can't let that be determined 
uh, in courtrooms by a bunch of idiot jurors. But, you know, these are the same guys who are determining the outcome of our elections. These are the people who are voting and they believe a bunch of nonsense. And, you know, but the whole American uh, judicial system is is a farce. And in fact, you want to you want to, you know, take farce to the extreme. Look at the news that we got today from Jesse Smollett. Now, I spent a lot of time on this podcast, probably more than a lot of people wanted, talking about Jesse Smollett, right? And if you don't remember who this guy is, he's that actor on Empire, happens to be African-American, happens to be homosexual, right? So he's a double victim. And, and he decided to fake a hate crime so that he could increase his appeal, become more famous so that he can earn more money, get a higher salary on Empire and just be a more famous guy. And so he, you know, he, he faked this, uh, this assault and he did it in a way that see, he wanted to look like a strong guy who fought back. Right. So it wasn't like he was a victim of a hate crime, but he fought back. Right. I mean, and they ran away, not him. He stood his ground after he was attacked and he chased away these big white racist thugs uh, who attacked him, although it turns out they weren't white. They were actually black. They were blacker than he was. They were uh, rather dark-skinned uh, Nigerians, and he's a much lighter-skinned uh, black <laughs> than the people that he claimed were white. But, I mean, I went over this whole thing from day one. I said, this was a lie. I said, this guy's making this up. There's no way this is true. It's just such a you know BS, improbable story. I said, if I'm wrong, I owe the guy an apology but I don't think I'm wrong. And of course, all of the facts ultimately came out to support my initial gut reaction based on the nonsense of what this guy was claiming happened to him. Uh, I, I, you know, I was vindicated. And so this guy ends up getting charged uh, with uh, multiple crimes, right? And he's going to stand trial. Meanwhile, the guy keeps saying he's innocent, despite the fact that they've got all this evidence that proves that he's guilty. And that he lied, right? He stays, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, right? I'm telling the truth. Those Nigerians are lying, right? I, you know, I don't know why they decided to dress up like white people and attack me. I've got no idea, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not involved. You know, <laughs> I thought they were white. And yet, by the way, I, you know, I, you know, I fought them off, <laughs> you know, all this nonsense. Um, the, the uh, Justice Department in, uh, or the prosecutor's office in Chicago, has decided to drop the case. Drop the case. That's it. It's over. And he doesn't even have to admit that he was guilty. You know, at least I was reading on the Robert Kraft, right, in in, in Palm Beach. They've offered to drop the charges against Robert Kraft for soliciting prostitution. You know, right, he basically got a happy ending and a massage, right? And they're saying, look, we'll drop the charges, but you have to at least sign off that says that, you know, we would, you know, based on the evidence, you're probably guilty, right? There has to be some admission that they have a good case against you if we went to trial. Uh, but, you know, I'm just going to, I agree that we'll drop the charges. I won't have to go to jail, but, you know, agree that you're, you know, you're kind of guilty, right? He doesn't have to do that. Smollett is having the charges dropped and he can continue to pretend that he's innocent. He admitted to nothing. In fact, he gave another press conference today in which he's claiming that he's innocent and that he was attacked and that it was a hate crime and that he is a hero because he did fight them off. He fought back. He was attacked, that they said all the racial slurs, that they called them all the names that he claimed, right? B.S. The guy is lying off his ass. 
why did they drop these charges? Obviously, he has got some powerful political connections on the left. The last thing they wanted was this trial. The trial was going to be televised. The last thing the powers that be on the left wanted was for a televised conviction of this guy lying about this hate crime. So they put pressure on the politicians in Chicago, who we know are very corrupt anyway, and they just dropped the charges. Now, of course, the Chicago Police Department is livid. And, you know, they did all this work. They did a lot of great police work. They 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 went got to the bottom of this. They built a very strong case. And now it's being dropped. The guy doesn't have to pay for anything. In fact, the only thing he has to pay is he posted a $10,000 bond um, when he was originally arrested. And so he forfeits the ten grand. Big deal. I mean, big deal. A, it was going to cost him a lot more than ten grand to defend himself in a trial. But ten grand is nothing. I mean, he, he paid the Nigerian brothers, what, I forget, $4,500 or something like that. So less than fifteen grand, and now he's a household name. I mean, think about that. That's the best money he ever spent for a publicity stunt. Now the guy's profile is higher than ever. He's, you know, he's famous, you know, beyond his, you know, his wildest imagination. What a great deal, you know, for such a small amount of money uh, to be able to get this famous and have this many people know who you are. But not only that, a lot of people are going to believe that he was innocent. They're going to say, oh, they dropped the charges because they had no case. They had a perfect case. They had an open and shut case. This is all politics. And it, again, it exposes the hypocrisy of the left. Why is this guy being let go, right? Because of his political influence, right? It, it is a double standard. And it's not white privilege because the guy's not white, right? He has got the privilege of connections, not only of wealth, but of good connections in uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and in Chicago, and that's why the guy is walking. But just imagine if the situation was reversed, right? What if it was still the Obama administration? And what if a white guy had hired two other white guys to pretend to attack him and, you know, uh, dress up with, you know, Obama, uh, you know, stuff, shirts, you know, Obama, and they were, you know, black Obama supporters, and, and this guy pretended that they, that they were calling him a cracker or, you know, whitey, and they were, they were, it was a racial assault, right, against a white person motivated by black uh, Obama supporters. So what if that happened? And all the evidence came out that the guy made it up, he lied to the police, he lied to the country, right? It was a phony attack that he staged as a publicity stunt to, to enrich himself and to hurt the Democratic Party, and to hurt President Obama, right? And then the city decided not to press charges. I mean, they'd be rioting in the streets right now, right? In fact, there'd be all these calls for the federal government to step in and file charges, file civil rights charges and all. That's not happening. No one is, you know, hey, the, why aren't the feds coming in? I mean, they could at least come in for mail fraud for that phony letter that he sent to himself, you know, with the aid of these Nigerian guys, you know, threatening him. Uh, but, you know, normally I don't like to say the federal government should get involved. I mean, I don't think hate crimes should even be a federal crime, but that's what they would be saying. Hey, it's a hate crime. The federal government should get involved. Well, if if it's if a hate crime is a federal offense, well, what about faking a hate crime? I mean, would, would that be a federal offense? But nobody is really, you know, clamoring, uh, certainly not on the left. This is a huge double standard uh, when it comes to this guy. But now they're kind of off the hook. I mean, number one, the message is, hey, if you want to fake a hate crime, as long as you have powerful political friends 
who will cover your ass if your lie unravels, if you if you do your hate crime, your fake hate crime so bad. I mean, this guy was about as bad as you can be, right? I mean, this is, I mean, he was terrible at pulling off a fake crime, right? I mean, because, I mean, and, and, but even if you do a, such a lousy job that the cops figure it out, right? And fuck, they probably knew it was a fake from the beginning. They were, they probably just like me, right? I came out right away, day one, soon as I heard it, this guy is lying, right? They probably had the same feeling, but they probably couldn't come right out and say it. They had to play their cards closer to the rest as they were investigating and looking for all the evidence to prove what I'm sure they thought all along that the guy was lying, right? Because police have a lot of, uh, you know, um, experience with with people who lie, witnesses who lie, people who say things that aren't true. You know, they, they, they so you know they they are very experienced at these situations, so they probably knew right away that this guy was lying, but they needed to give him the benefit of the doubt, treat him like a victim just because he claimed he was a victim and then go about their investigation. And it was probably easier to get the cooperation of Schmolet if they initially pretended that they agreed with him, that they believed him, because if they said right off the back, hey, you're a suspect, he would have lawyered up quicker and it would have been harder for them to get some of the evidence that they needed, like, you know, from his cell phone. So I think they played dumb initially. Uh, but then, you know, they, they were able to really do a great job of putting all the pieces together on this crime. But what this says is, hey, you can go ahead and fake crimes. You can pretend that you that you were attacked. And if you do a good job and no one figures it out, then great. Right. You get all this publicity and you also can, you know, advance your political cause. But if it goes wrong, well, don't worry. Uh, you know, your friends in high places have your back. They'll make sure you don't actually get charged. Uh, with, uh, you know, staging a fake hate crime and lying to the police and obstructing justice. And now he's going to be able to do just like O.J. Simpson, right? I'm innocent. You know, the, 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 the man, the white establishment, they tried, they tried to fabricate a case, they, they, you know, but they had to drop it when they realized they had no evidence. I'm innocent. I'm a hero. You know, we're going to have to hear this, uh, you know, forever from this guy. I mean, hopefully... Uh, enough people will be so disgusted by what he did uh, that they will refuse to, you know, watch or buy a ticket or, you know, patronize any any um, any production, any television show, any movie that this guy uh, is a part of. So maybe he could be box office poison, but it could end up being the reverse. Again, he could be a hero of the left uh, because, you know, now he can still claim that he was uh, that he was assaulted and. The fact that they dropped the charges is vindication of uh, of his assault. And so, you know, we'll see. He could still end up being uh, a lot more famous. And in his case, crime could really pay uh, because, you know, he was the right color. He was the right sexual orientation and he had the right friends and he was the right political party. <music>